Hi, I'm Dr. John Newfeld, and you're watching Truth and Life Today. The subject today is a difficult one, abortion. Stay tuned. What if we never asked the question and simply chose to look the other way? You know, we live in a day in which exposés and finding out the real thing that actually happened behind the scenes, I mean, that's just become a national passion. I mean, whether or not it's getting behind, uh, you know, who created what and what political situation led to whatever we're experiencing today, the idea of an expose, inquiring minds always want to know. That's a mantra, I think, for our day. And yet when it comes to abortion and what actually happens in an abortion clinic, um, what actually happens in the womb of the mother, whether or not the child is a real human being, and all of those questions that we should be asking and demanding an answer, the, the national media and indeed the conversation around the country is absolute silence. I've been told that in Canada alone, the amount of abortions that happen daily is roughly akin to a jumbo jet crashing in this country every single day. Now imagine that. Imagine a jumbo jet crashing in this country every day, killing all souls aboard, and not one soul asks the question of what actually happened. How did this come to be? What is it actually like for the people who were aboard the airplane? Did they feel any pain? Were they filled with terror? All of those kinds of things. What if we never asked the question and simply chose to look the other way? I think that's what's happening in today's abortion debate. We have selected only one question only, and that is, it's the right of a mother to choose. Now, of course, there are all sorts of choices that we are allowed to have. But every one of us recognizes that when we say it's my right to choose, that we have to fill in the rest of the blank. Some choices are immoral. Some choices are highly moral, and some choices are indifferent. And so it becomes apparent that we need to define what kind of a choice that we're making. Now, in the Christian world, we always talk about sin and we talk about righteousness. We can't talk about the mercy of God, and we can't talk about grace and forgiveness and God's kindness until we talk about our offenses against God. And so we're talking today about one of the offenses against God. God has created human life and that he has infused in every human life inherent value. That value is called the image of God. There are some ways in which we are remarkably like God. Now, I know, I know, there are some ways in which we're not like God at all. Only God is infinite. Only God is all-knowing. But in some ways, we are remarkably like God. It is what gives us value. It's what makes us different than every other being that exists on this earth. That is, animal life, plant life, every other kind of life. We alone have been given a value which is infinitely above the value of everything else. Is it simply a matter of indifference? Is it a morally right thing to do? That is, if a child is unwanted or it creates you know, an inconvenience in the life of a mother, or is it an immoral choice? I think it's time for Canadians and especially for Christians to talk about this very thing. For our silence on this matter speaks more loudly than if we were to speak about it. And so clearly it seems to me 
that when it comes to the issues of life and of God and of the ending of life, clearly we need to talk. I have in studio today Stephanie Gray. Stephanie is the president of an organization based in Vancouver, which is called Love Unleashes Life. She is an international pro-life speaker and author and has appeared on numerous uh, television stations, interviews, debates. Um, She is heard not only throughout North America, but also throughout the world. It's a delight to have Stephanie Gray in studio with us today. Stephanie, it's delightful to have you in studio here at Truth and Life. And I know that you've been involved in pro-life causes for quite some time. Uh, But today, I want to speak to you about something very specific. Uh, A new movie has come out called Unplanned. And as of this recording, uh, no provincial government in Canada has allowed it to be rated. And since it can't be rated, it can't be shown in the movie theater. So in essence, I guess we could say it's been banned in Canada. What's it all about? I haven't seen it, but you have. What are we talking about? What's made this so explosive? So this is a film about abortion that was uh, released in the United States and I think has made well over $10 million in the box office. It's been played in theaters across the American country. So it's a moneymaker. United States of America, exactly. And it's based on a true story of a woman by the name of Abby Johnson who wrote a book by the same title of the movie called Unplanned. And Abby's story is that when she was in college, uh, she got involved in Planned Parenthood, which is one of the biggest abortion, uh, pro-abortion and abortion um, uh, clinics uh, type organizations in the United States. So she got involved in her college years and worked her way up so that she was the director of a clinic in Texas. And not only was she overseeing a lot of abortions happening there, but she herself had a history of having had two abortions. She had a, a chemical abortion where she had taken drugs orally that induced an abortion. And then she had had a a surgical first trimester abortion. And so the film unfolds her story of conversion because one day when she was at the abortion clinic, they needed some help in in, uh, one of the uh, exam rooms where an abortionist was doing an abortion and he always did ultrasound guided abortions. So often abortionists do abortions without ultrasound. So they're going by touch, the feel of the instruments and just grasping the baby's body parts. But this particular abortionist used ultrasound so that he was visualizing on the screen where his instruments were going and where the child was. And so Abby was called in to the uh, exam room uh, where the abortion was about to happen and asked to uh, assist by holding the ultrasound probe on the pregnant woman as the doctor was doing the abortion. And so she's holding the probe and staring at the screen and she sees the perfectly formed body of a first trimester preborn child and then watches as the baby tries to move away from the force of the suction tube, and ultimately the suction tube overcomes the baby, and she watches the screen as the baby literally is pulled down the tube. And that became her moment of conversion, and she thought, I can't do this anymore. And she left the clinic that day and became a pro-life advocate. And so the story is about her journey of what she was like, what she did, how she believed, and and what she became. And the abortion rights movement doesn't want that story to be seen, told, or known. And that's why we see resistance to getting this movie out. 
Now, when you use the word conversion, I don't think you meant conversion to Christ. Did you mean conversion? Well, she did. Uh-huh. Yeah, she she had been going to church, and and you see this amongst abortion supporters who work. Some of them who work in clinics, they will go to church, but they will find the most liberal church that that has messages that tickles their ears rather than um, uh, the true heart of of the gospel. So, after becoming pro life, she also then had uh, a spiritual conversion and eventually became a Catholic Christian and um, has since had, she had one child that was born, two that were aborted. She's now pregnant and about to give birth to her eighth living child. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, um, uh, Stephanie, I have a number of experiences of having led people to Christ, Mm. a number of women who have then come to me later, shortly after, shortly after, and said, I never thought it was a sin. I never mentioned it. I never thought it was a sin till now. And I've been thinking about the two abortions that I've had. So it seems like conversion to Christ awakens the reality of the value of life. Absolutely. And when we realize, okay, I'm a sinner, Christ is my savior, then we start doing an inventory. What are my sins? What is weighing on me? You know, what, what do I do? dream or nightmare about? You know, what do I wake up feeling guilty about? And all too often for women who've had abortions, they never forget that abortion or that two or three abortions that they've had. And so when they come to Christ, there's that realization of the specific sin and the thought, oh my goodness, what have I done? And so of course the good news is, well, God is merciful and we can be washed clean through the blood of Christ. And and there is a powerful scene in the movie near the end where Abby is overcome with the weight of her sin, that it wasn't just her own children that she aborted, that she was responsible for untold numbers of children who lost their lives in her clinic, that she was overseeing, that she was profiting from year after year, making money off of the deaths of these children. So her conversion is 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 super powerful in giving a testimony to people that God is merciful, that that if you've killed one child or two children or thousands of children, some way been responsible for that, there's no number that would cause God to say, oh, I won't forgive you for that. Oh, you, you've crossed the line with, with that quantity of sins or, you know, no, God, God is a merciful God. Well, let's talk about his mercy towards sin. And we're going to do something now mm-hmm. that is going to seem very explosive to some who are watching this. Let's describe what happens in an abortion. Do you want to do that? Sure. You know, the majority of abortions happen in the first trimester. And often people think, well, you know, the mom doesn't even look pregnant. That's not a big deal. But in the first trimester, that baby's heart begins beating at three weeks into pregnancy, typically before she even knows she's pregnant. At six weeks into that pregnancy, brain waves have been detected in that preborn child. And at the end of the eighth week, when the child enters the ninth week and is no longer labeled the term embryo, but is called a fetus, which is just a Latin term for young one. And both of these labels are age categories, much like infant, toddler, and teenager are age categories. Uh, as that child gets to that that fetal stage, everything is there, but just needs to grow and get larger. So the brain, the heart, the lungs, everything is fully formed. You see the the ten fingers and toes. At what at what, what so, age? So well, I mean the, the the heart is three weeks. The fingers and toes you begin to see in the bud form um, be, before the fetal stage. But in terms of everything being in, in its more formed state and then needing to get bigger is usually that transition period from embryo to fetus. Um, and the majority of abortions happen in the first 
12 weeks of pregnancy. And the most common surgical abortion at that point would be a suction abortion. So a suction tube is inserted into the cervix, the opening of the uterus. And that suction tube, in a sense, is like a high-powered vacuum. It's going to suction out whatever's in the uterus. Well, what's in the uterus? The tiny body of a baby, a body that has a heartbeat and that has brain waves and that has fingers and toes and a face and eyes. And so when that suction machine is turned on, the power of the suction pulls the baby out, often piece by piece, not whole. So the, the arms, the legs, they are dismembered. Uh, the child is decapitated, disemboweled. And then when all of this is then suctioned into a container, those who work at the abortion clinic need to then open that container up and put all the parts onto a tray and place the parts together to reform the body of a baby to make sure they got all the parts out. Because if the suction did not entirely suction the uterus so that maybe a leg got left in, uh, the mother can hemorrhage intense bleeding and that can, can bring about very serious consequences. So in order to make sure the mother's health is okay post-abortion, they will piece the body parts together. And so just the thought that that is done should grieve us immensely to think, well, those are body parts of who? That's a leg of who? That's the face of who? A child made in the image of God who could not defend herself. You had mentioned in the Unplanned movie that the, the baby instinctively drew back. Mm. Is that a common feature? That I've heard that been said on a number of occasions, including um, there's a very famous and powerful story from decades ago with Dr. Bernard Nathanson, who's now deceased, who had been an abortionist, and he was one of the co-founders of the National Abortion Rights Action League, which fought for legalized abortion in the United States. And he had done many abortions, and he decided one day to also do an ultrasound-guided abortion and noticed the, that instinctive moving back of the child when that suction tube got close. And the film that um, that footage eventually got placed into when he converted and became pro-life uh, is called The Silent Scream because he noticed on the ultrasound image the child's mouth opened up as though the child was screaming. You've got more to talk about because I think we need to, to talk about why it is that the actual details of abortion are being withheld mm. from the Canadian population, from the North American population. So let's talk about that, but we'll be right back. we never asked the question and simply chose to look the other way. Well, welcome back to Truth and Life. Uh, Stephanie, it's great to have this conversation. I think I can say that. Uh, this is a very sober conversation. And most Canadians don't know what actually happens uh, in an in abortion clinic. Um, most Canadians, I'm going to argue, don't realize that in Canada there are no abortion laws, so we have late-stage partial birth abortion. So I'm going to ask you just now to define what is a partial birth abortion. Mm. So in Canada, we have no laws banning abortion, um, so it can happen through all nine months of pregnancy until the child is 
proceeded entirely in a living state from the body of the mother. Um, my understanding is partial birth abortion itself, I don't know if that happens here, although I don't see any law banning it. So with partial birth abortion, um, the baby would normally come uh, head first when a child is going to be delivered. Correct. So with partial birth abortion, the abortionist makes sure or turns around the child so the child is essentially breech and would be feet first. So then the child is pulled out of the mother's body up until the head, and the head is kept in the body because if the child has not fully proceeded in a living state from the body of the mother— then the child isn't protected under Canadian law. So then a sharp instrument is put in the back of the neck of the child, the, ne the neck opened up, um, a suction tube inserted to suck the brains out of the baby, which then causes the head to collapse and the head of the child more readily delivered and the child proceeds uh, dead from the body of the mother. My understanding in Canada is the more common later term abortion procedure would be one in which the child um, is injected with potassium chloride, KCL, or some other similar substance into the heart of the child, which would essentially induce cardiac arrest. It would give a heart attack to the baby. Once the baby is now dead in the body of the mom, uh, her cervix will be prepared so that it is uh, widened uh, with laminaria and, and other instruments. And then once her cervix is widened enough, the abortionist goes in with various tools and clamps down on whatever they feel and yanks out. And it would be, oh, there's a leg. And then they would go in again, clamp down and pull out, okay, there's an arm go in, clamp down. When they get to the head, if you read the literature uh, that the medical community provides for, for doing this type of abortion, they talk about using a crushing and rotating technique on the head of the child so that bone spicules of the baby don't lacerate or cut the cervix of the mom when the abortionist is pulling these parts out. So it's absolutely horrifying. And so that, to my understanding, is the common late-term abortion procedure that's done uh, here in, in Canada. Am I right in assuming this happens many times every day? In terms of abortions, yes. There are approximately 100,000 abortions a year in uh, Canada. And certainly the majority of that 100,000 would be first trimester, but it doesn't mean there aren't any later term abortions. There are some, and we certainly know that that babies are, I know of, of a case where uh, very tragically uh, a late term abortion happened on a baby where, you know, a whole community rallied around to convince the child's mother not to do the abortion. And she proceeded with a very late term abortion that involved what I just described to you. Since it happens 100,000, uh, however it's done, mm -hmm. um, every year, there are only 365 days in a year, so w they're happening multiple abortions every single day, yes. day in, day out, never ceasing. Why is it that what we've just been talking about, which is horrible, why is it that we're not having this conversation in the nation? I mean, if this is happening behind closed doors, I mean, every other possible scandal is opened up for everyone to see, but not this one. The doors remain closed. The cameras never go in. The conversation never starts, Stephanie. Why is that? 
Well, because people are responsible that even if they have not committed abortion, all too often people have permitted abortion. And that degree of guilt is often causing people to hold back and be in a state of denial where they will put, you know, essentially, figuratively speaking, scales on their own eyes and say, well, it's it's not what you think it is, or I didn't know that was happening. So we have a responsibility who know the truth, who know the facts, who have the eyes to see. We have a responsibility to bring what's in darkness into the light, precisely so people can be awoken from their uh, from their slumber uh, and and become aware of exactly what is happening. You th- I look at Saul to Paul; uh, the scales had to fall from mm-hmm. his eyes, and so uh, we need to create an atmosphere where this is being discussed, where the facts are being brought into the light, so that the scales fall from people's eyes. Stephanie, I'm going to ask you a personal question mm-hmm. because you're on the front line of this. You don't seem to me to be an angry person. Mm. Do you feel anger? I don't feel angry at my fellow humans who are involved in abortion, but I feel angry at abortion. And I feel angry at a society that has um, enabled and fueled the destruction of the most innocent amongst us. I, I, I have grieved for those who have uh, been involved in abortion. I have debated abortionists and I have thought how tormented they must be, even if they don't admit it, at the guilt they, are, they have to live with for what they do. Um, but I hate that abortion happens still. And so um, there's a righteous anger at the injustice that anyone of goodwill needs to have, and I certainly do have. We know that the Romans, the ancient Romans, found pipes Mm. um, in ancient Rome which were plugged with human Mm. fetuses. Um, The the Christian movement ended abortion. Uh, We have some of the great ancient preachers, uh, John Chrysostom, who said we must not make the chamber of procreation a chamber of death. Mm. Um, Great quote. Great quote. Um, So this has been the long history. Let me ask you this. Do you think that the Christian church is speaking about this enough? I mean, maybe we're understanding why the culture doesn't. Yeah. But it seems to me, Stephanie, that we're not talking about it in the church. Why is that? Well, uh, we're not, and we, we're not talking about it enough, and we absolutely need to talk about it more. And again, I think it's because there's a lot of fear. There's fear in the church like there's fear in the individual pregnant woman's life. What am I going to do with this pregnancy? And all too often, pastors are thinking, well, if I preach on abortion, how is how are my church members going to respond? And do I have post-abortive women here? And will people leave? And will that affect our finances? Um, Now, what we have to realize is you can preach poorly, but you could also preach well. So the fears that you have don't have to be realized if the issue is addressed properly. So there's a need for the church to rise up. And and what you bring to mind when you talk about the early church is, is one of my favorite quotes from Martin Luther King Jr., the great civil rights activist. And he once said, there was a time when the church was very powerful. He said, there was a time when the early Christians read rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. And he said, in those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. He said it was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. And he said, whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed. And the power structure sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace